Hello, friends, and welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, a best-selling author of the book, U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. And I created the U-Turn book and the podcast as a place to help you connect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week, I want to bring a guest on with the intention of helping you expand what's possible for you, both in your confidence, whether it's in work or love, and just in life in general. So let's get into this week's episode. Hey, U-Turn friends, it's Ash here. And if there's anything I've learned, it's that the love category on this show just really seems to crush it. And I get it. I feel like there's nothing that hurts quite like heartache, whether it's a breakup or your current relationship and just the usual ebbs and flows. And that's why I wanted to bring Alexandra Solomon. She's a PhD. And she's a internationally recognized as one of today's most trusted voices around relationships. And she has a framework around relational self-awareness, and it's touched millions of people. She's a couples therapist, speaker, and author, a professor, and she has a podcast called Reimagining Love. I mean, who doesn't need that? A retreat leader, media personality, and she's really just about taking cutting-edge research and clinical wisdom, which we all know how much I freaking love research into practical, tactical, grounded tools that people can use to bring into their awareness, curiosity, and authenticity when it comes to relationships. Um, She is the award-winning author of a couple books. One is called Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality. And then the other one I really want to dig into is called Create the Relationships You Want and Love Bravely, 20 Lessons to Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want. And this was featured on the Today Show um, I could go on and on. She has she's a clinician educator, a contributor to academic journals, on the faculty at Northwestern. Um, I mean, on and on. So without further ado, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Solomon. It's so good to meet you, Ashley. Yeah, you too. I was just telling her everyone that I've been seeing her in my orbit. I know that we all we had Sylvie Kukasian and Mark Rose on the show. And I've seen your work in their orbit as well. So it's really making the rounds. Um, What got you into sexuality and love as a topic in the first place for you to master? Mm, Well, I mean, I've been working as a licensed clinical psychologist for years and years and years. So I, I knew that I wanted to become a therapist. I think, you know, and as, as many therapists will tell you, it was in part to understand and heal from some pretty dysfunctional patterns in my own family of origin. But when I went to graduate school, I really didn't know that I was going to become a couples therapist. I went to graduate school to study what I consider to be women's issues or feminist issues like body image, like intimate partnership violence. Those were the topics that I really wanted to research and dig into. And it was sort of a a twist of fate that I ended up training at a place called the Family Institute. Um, which where the focus is on couple and family therapy. And I, you know, I think I had had this, I had this notion in my mind that studying love and sex and relationships was like too soft. Like I was a feminist, like I was, you know, busting up the patriarchy. I did not have time to be worrying about, you know, things like marriage. It just seemed kind of 
not my jam, but <laughs> I, uh, the universe had different ideas for me. And it turns out that studying relationships and marriage is actually a perfect place to bring a feminist lens and, you know, kind of question how culture shapes our expectations and our notions. So I'm, you know, 20 plus years in, I've not ever been bored. It has offered me tremendous opportunities to look at my own life, my own early experiences. Um, I know for sure that I'm a better wife and mother, you know, and friend because of the work that I've been able to do. I learn from my clients and my students um, every day. And so, yeah, this this realm of of love and sex and sexuality is, um, is rich and it's something that creates meaning. You know, research is um, really clear that certainly like career success matters, certainly good health matters, but really what makes a good life, a meaningful life, this is um, research out of Harvard, you know, is the quality of our relationship. So it's hard to think of what's more important than us understanding how to do love well. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and it explains why so many people are downloading the love episodes. When we talk about mindset, we talk about the workplace and it seems like these episodes really pull extra weight, especially the episodes about sex. And one of the things that I love you talk about in your, that you talk about in your book around the 20 lessons is that, you know, like sex is very natural, but it takes effort to have good sex. Mm. And I think there's a lot of people right now listening, if they're anything like I used to be, where I remember being with somebody that I was like, we just don't want the same thing sexually. You know, mm-hmm. like he was into kink and I was like, that sounds like not my t- kind of time. I tried and I just uh-huh. couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love your take on like, what does it take to have good sex? What do you have to say about people who are wondering, like, do we just not have the sexual chemistry Maybe they have a tiny spark, but it's not enough to take a marriage. Right. I don't know. I would just love your feedback there. For yeah. Me. Yeah. I mean, I think sex is one of these topics where like none of us want to say that we need support and education and information and conversation, but we all do because how the hell are we supposed to have a healthy relationship with our own sexuality, much less, you know, relational sexuality without some, you know, support and guidance and information. Um, So yeah, when I wrote my first book, Loving Bravely, you know, one of the 20 lessons is devoted to what I call sexual self-awareness, understanding the messages that, you know, you've been soaking up from culture about who you're supposed to be, who you're not allowed to be, how to ask for what you need. But even as I wrote that chapter, I was like, oh shit, there's like a whole, (laughs) it's a whole book here where I really want to just deepen into this topic of sexuality. So that became my second book, which is called Taking Sexy Back, which is really a guide for women, especially women. And then the people who love the women around just looking at like what our culture does to us around sexuality, because you're right that, you know, good sex has really very little to, or if nothing to do with like six pack abs, you know, or like really super clever moves, really good sex is about presence. It's about presence. It's about curiosity. It's about patience. It's about, you know, um, kind of understanding where you are and understanding where your partner is. It's like kind of like jazz improv, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, And I think that's one of the first shifts that I want people to make is moving out of this idea that sex should look some kind of a way. And we're inundated, you know, whether it's through whatever, you know, romantic movies that show sex as this highly like glossy, perfect, like clothes come off really smoothly, you know, the lighting's always perfect. Or whether it's porn that, you know, kind of gives us a message that we ought to be up for anything, you know, and quite extreme, da-da-da-da. 
And really like developing this kind of more interior understanding of how do I notice the pulls? How do I attend to the yeses? How do I notice the noes? And, you know, your example of being partner with somebody where they really, they were interested in exploring kink. I mean, I do think that is, I think, listen, I think we, no two people have the exact same sexual templates, right? Differences in desire, differences in kind of like expansiveness um, to an openness to experience are going to happen. And then there are some, it sounds like with you and this partner, there was a, it was actually like an incompatibility that yeah. there was not, you know, so I think there are places where couples do stretch and I hear that you stretched. And I think there are places where if, if what's, you know, I think because we tend to locate and express our sexuality within the, the bounds of a relationship, like you do want to have alignment and sort of a shared, you know, kind of, enough overlap between yeah. your unique sexual templates that you can create some cool stuff together. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it kind of comes down to like bending versus breaking, right? It's yeah. Like how much can you bend until you break? And for me, like having the handcuffs on, I was breaking. And for other people, sure. it's like, turn on. And so I think um, what would you have to say just – I feel like there's a lot of women especially – that are and men, you know, but mostly women, I would say, according to the research, are faking orgasms. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what what is it that causes that? Why are we so afraid to ask for what we want? And is it hopeless? Maybe the sex is just okay. Can you still marry somebody that it's okay with and work on it in your life? Like what would be a comforting or maybe honest message you have for everybody? When the world feels crazy and chaotic, remember that you don't have to. You deserve to take control of your mental health and your physical health. Cured Nutrition is trying to make it easier for you to do exactly that. Formulated with their trinity of ingredients, a blend of full-spectrum cannabinoids, functional mushrooms, and adaptogens, Serenity Gummies are your answer to finding the calm in every storm. I've been so excited about Cured. They want you to feel good about feeling good. So they took their time in really formulating these Serenity gummies. They left out the artificial flavors, sugars, and dyes, and they replaced them with ingredients that actually live up to their clean label wellnessy word. When I'm relaxed, I perform better and I make better decisions in my work and overall my life. I just started taking these Serenity gummies and I find that in moments that I would normally stress out, I feel somehow calm and collected. Each gummy is packed with ashwagandha, a medicinal herb for fatigue, L-theanine, which supports stress relief, reishi, an adaptogenic stress buster, and so much more. Right now, Cured is extending an exclusive offer to the U-Turn community. You can grab a bag of Serenity gummies for 20% off by visiting curednutrition.com slash U-Turn. That's C-U-R-E-D nutrition, N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N dot com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N and use the coupon code U-Turn at checkout to save that 20%. Protect your peace, grab a gummy. So the first thing we got to talk about is basically the way in which the head, you know, I think queer couples for, for as much marginalization, oppression, deep, deep unfairness that queer couples deal with. Um, there is, there is an opportunity for queer couples just by, by based purely on 
you know, who they are alone, they are outside of this very rigid, narrow, heterosexual script. So oftentimes with queer couples, we see much more creativity, much higher um, sexual satisfaction with queer couples than straight couples, because what straight couples have is their relationships exist against the backdrop of patriarchy. And what patriarchy has taught us is that men lead and women follow that, um, and that the, the heterosexual sexual script is incredible incredibly focused on penetrative sex. Think about the language we use. We use the word foreplay to describe the things you do just to get the bodies warmed up and ready for the main act, which is penetration. And but yet when you, a lot of women can only get a clitoral orgasm, I'm guessing. Well, exactly. That's right. That's yes. that's right. Yes. Do you have any data or stats on that? Like, I I don't expect you to be like a walking encyclopedia, but I'm obsessed with data. And I feel like at Northwestern, you must have it coming out of your ears. So mm-hmm. what can you, is there any research snapshot on that? Well, yeah, it is, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of women um, cannot have an orgasm from penetration alone. It's like, it's like maybe 15%. I don't have a number off the top of my head, but it is a very small percentage of us that can have an orgasm just from penetration. Because when you understand, you know, the first thing women have to do is look at the anatomy, just looking at the anatomy, the, you know, the vaginal opening and the clitoris, you know, are not necessarily super close together. And so there needs to be, you know, but, but when women, when there is, you know, manual stimulation integrated, when there's oral stimulation, when there's a toy involved, you know, women will have orgasms at a very comparable rate to queer women, to women, women with men will have orgasms at nearly the same rate as women with women, men with men, men who are with women, right? The orgasm gap is that heterosexual women in highly penetrative sexual situations are going to have a very difficult time having orgasms because of what you're saying. The clitoris, you know, there needs to be understanding, appreciation, uh, honoring of clitoral stimulation, which may or may not happen just from penetration. So there needs to be more, but that's Mm -hmm. something that we don't like, where the hell are we supposed to have learned that? You know, I didn't learn that in my sex ed and we wouldn't learn it from, you know, watching porn or watching romantic movies, but that is essential. I was working about a year ago at a conference with, um, only men. It was, I was the only woman in this conference and I was talking to them about, you know, clitoral anatomy and breaking down this heterosexual script. And these men have been married for years and years. And a couple of them, you know, knew about the clitoris, but the vast majority of the men, all of whom have wives were like, I don't even know. What are you talking about? Show me the diagram again. Where is that? And how do I, you know, men want to be good. Most men want to be good lovers, but it means taking down, deconstructing this sexual script that foreplay is just to get people ready. Because foreplay really, that's the stuff that tends to get women off far more Yes, efficiently. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what is your message for anyone who's listening right now? And I know you're talking a lot about educating yourself. Um, Since you are, you know, a clinical psychologist, I'm guessing you have a way of helping someone communicate with their partner of basically saying, hey, this is okay, but I believe we could get it to be great. Like, how Mm -hmm. does somebody even start that conversation? Especially because with the amount of women faking orgasms, I'm guessing there's a lot of people who it's going to blindside their partner. Their partner is going to think that it's like honky-dory over there. That's right. And so how do you even like tiptoe into like, hey, love you. Can you do this differently? Like, how do you? Yeah. Well, the first, you know, I, I would want her first step to be like 
hand on the heart, so much self-compassion for having faked, you know, especially if it's somebody who has been faking for a while, because that's not, that's not something that she came up with herself, right? The research about the percentage of women who fake is very, very high. Most women have faked at some point. And the reasons they give is something like, I wasn't going to have an orgasm anyways. I was not comfortable. I needed the experience to end. I did it to make my partner happy. You know, when you look at like all of the really subtle ways that we are taught from the time we are little, little girls to placate, to um, accommodate men, it's pretty profound. So of course that shows up in the bedroom. So the first thing is kind of the grief and self-compassion for yourself that you didn't have the information you need and your partner didn't have the information they need. And then from there, it becomes an opportunity. And I think it can, I think it's just the way you're saying it of like, you know, I love being like, throw me under the bus. Be like, I listened to Ashley and this, you know, crazy doctor from Northwestern and they were saying da, da, da. like, throw me, throw us under the bus. Like, I love the idea of kind of bringing in a resource of like, Hey, I was just listening to this and I wonder if we might try. And the frame is really positive. Like, I love you. I love us. And here's what I was wondering, would you be up for trying this with me? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, so it's positive. It's not, it doesn't need to be a grand confession. It doesn't, it, it's not a betrayal. It's not a deception. It is, a, you know, I think that somebody could start this journey without ever having talked about, I have been faking. I think it can just be, can we try some things differently? I'm I'm learning some more about my body that I didn't know before. And so I would love to um, see what you and I might, you know, what we might try, bring yeah. in, right? It's bringing in rather than, this whole thing has been wrong because I think that's the other patriarchy doesn't just screw over women. It hurts men. I think men learn, you know, any, any man will talk to you about kind of that sense they had growing up about their sense of self-worth and self-esteem being about their desirability in women's eyes, you know, straight, straight men at least will tell you that. And so there can be like a, like a high, high sensitivity of if I don't please my woman, if I'm not, desirable to women, I don't even know how to anchor my self-worth. So it can feel, you know, this conversation can feel threatening, which is why I'm really wanting people to frame it positively about like, listen, we're in this together. I want to be in it for the long run. So where might we go with our sexual, you know, play? And how does somebody make a decision of like, this is actually just like, I'm breaking, I'm not bending, I'm breaking. This is not compatible. This is not working. I don't know if I can have sex with this person the rest of my life or call them my partner. How do you face that? Because I think that it's like, takes so much to find someone you can vibe with, you can build with, that you can understand, that understands you. Then you've got this extra element, which I mean, quite frankly, is the thing you do to not be just friends. So mm-hmm. how do you, um, is there anything you could give or any wisdom for someone who's maybe stuck in this thought? Yeah. Of how they kind of move their energy around with it. How do you move forward or backwards or left or right? Yeah. I mean, one piece is to um, sexual problems are incredibly common and sexual problems can be worked on. And every sexual problem is a couple problem. Even if the erection you know, that is inconsistent is on your body. Or even if the low desire, you know, lives inside my body, we've got to approach it as a couple. There's nothing about sex. It's about my fault versus your fault. It's about the couple approaching as a team. And so I think to me, though, the situation where something may not be reparable, there may not be a path forward is when that partner is just not 
available for any curious conversation, any, you know, um, reimagining of what's possible for them sexually. That really is, right? Because I think if there's a willingness and if there's a curiosity, couples can can renegotiate, re-experience, redo, heal and grow together. I believe that. I believe that couples, you know, I know that my husband and I have been together for whatever, years and years. And I enjoy our sexual connection more now than I did when we were in our 20s together. Do you want to get your daily dose of greens, but not feel like you're eating dirt? (laughs) This episode is sponsored in part by our dear friends over at Athletic Greens. And what I love about their greens powder is that they're not only carbon neutral, but they taste incredible. I started taking Athletic Greens because I really wanted to get all the nutrients and all the vitamins that I could in one swoop. And I just couldn't bring myself to keep drinking those celery, veggie, juice, smoothie things. I just wanted something that tasted good and was good for me. And their greens are tropical, tasty, and yes, their travel packs are perfect for road trips and getaways. So you never really have to miss out. I've been on Athletic Greens for the past year and I just can't seem to live without it anymore. I've passed it on to a couple of friends and now it's become a staple for all of us. I actually look forward to taking my greens every morning. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of nutrients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, focus, and your anti-aging, all the things. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient, daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. I actually even put it in a smoothie sometimes. To make it easy, head on over to athleticgreens.com slash U-turn, and you're going to get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is head to athleticgreens.com slash U-turn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to this week's episode. I hear that a lot with friends that like if they're married, it's like the sex gets better. I'm curious to touch on something that you had mentioned here, which is kind of around this idea of reimagining. So I know your podcast is called Reimagining Love. Um, I think for a lot of people who are trying to find their life partner, or maybe they're with who they've chosen as a life partner, um, there is like some sort of need that they have that maybe, you know, they've been married 10 years and they're like, shit, I wish I knew that I needed this thing that this person struggles to give me. Um, in my case, you know, I used to have a pattern of dating unavailable men, but now I date available men, which is way more fun for me. Mm -hmm. Oh, I bet. Um, yeah. And I really want depth. I really want um, – and it's interesting because it's on a spectrum, right? Like I have a friend who all of her friends are talking about trauma healing to an extent that I'm actually not enjoying the depth because it's too much for me. And then with some of the men I've dated, it's too little. I ask them about their upbringing or their life and they're like, well, I don't know. And fine. It's fine. It's fine. Right. <laughs> so how do you decide, you know, especially as a psychologist, how can you advise us to kind of look at an issue eye to eye in a relationship and say – we can reimagine this versus yeah. this is not workable. Maybe taking depth as an example, because I know that there's, you know, according to gender normative standards, right? Like women mm-hmm. are allegedly more emotional than men, which I don't even know if that's true because they're they're just showing their emotions differently. Yeah. But um, 
yeah, so let's say there's like Sally listening and she wants more depth and she's been with mm-hmm. her husband for five years and she hits she hits a wall when she's talking mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. Um, is she doomed for the rest of her life? Like, damn, these conversations are boring. What was I thinking marrying this guy? Or right. what, how can right. she reimagine it? Yeah, I mean, I I think um I think this is tricky. I think one of the problems with modern relationships is that we tend to want all of our needs to be met by one person, right? We are hugely at risk of overburdening our intimate relationships. And that does not mean that I want people languishing in things that are deeply unsatisfying. But I tell you what, I got a husband, but I got a bunch of girlfriends. Yeah. Like, and I and I would not be able to be in this marriage in a sustainable ongoing way without my girlfriends. Like there, there are, there are things that there are conversations I can have with them that I don't have with Todd, not necessarily because I couldn't, but just because it's not how he values. It's not what, it's not where his heart beats. It's not where he lives. So I, I know what to expect from him. I know, I also know that I can go deep and be witness and I don't need to have him and I don't need to be the arbiter of depth, right? Like what's deep for me may be look different than him. So I think sometimes we get, I think that there's those of us who are like, you know, seekers or healers, or we're the ones who are breaking the generational patterns in our family. Like we, we are at risk of getting a little judgy that our way of living is better than other ways of living. And so I think we just need to also keep a bit of humility and curiosity in mind that there's, that there's a risk of us going too far, that we can get perhaps a bit navel gazy. We can overthink. We can step out of presence because we're like analyzing or wondering how this moment ties to my role in my family of origin. You know, we can get a little bit, we can be a bit hard to be with. Um, at times and that, and I guess, so for Sally, what I would want, what I would want is for her to get maybe a bit clearer about what does a deep conversation hold for her? Um, and what is she doing to invite that out in her husband, in her husband? Because he may be a very good man, but he may, he may be a man who has been listening very closely to his culture and his culture has told him, don't look inside. Don't let him see you sweat. Don't cry. Emotions, my my sir, are weakness. So don't do it. So he may only, for the love of Sally, begin to look more deeply at his family of origin, at his growing edges, at his insecurities. He may only do that because Sally wants him to. And can Sally be grateful as hell for that versus like, well, you're only doing this for me, you know? So I think that's often the way that men, I mean, I, I guarantee every man. I don't guarantee, but probably every man who's read Loving Bravely or Taking Sexy Back or listened to my podcast has had it sent to them by their wife, by their girlfriend, by their sister, by their mom. It's just, that's just the way, you know, the the numbers, like self-help, you know, people who buy self-help books, people who listen, and it just, it's just the numbers skew in the direction of women. Okay. So then I have to ask you, if somebody's getting started on their podcast and it's around sex or I don't know, like what would be some of your favorite episodes that you could, and I could put these in the show notes if Uh, you have time to think about it and let us know, but curious where people could get started to go deeper on this. Um, And I love what you're sharing. You know, I actually had dinner with um, Esther Perel like a month ago and was looking at her work and it it is so true. I mean, she talks a lot about how we expect from one person what a village used to provide us and it would be more true. So Um, yeah. Where would you recommend people start if they want to go deeper into your podcast? Mm. I mean, at this point we've got like 
60 something episodes. So somebody can just, you know, scroll through and like just wherever, whatever feels like there's a little pull for them. I will say what they'll notice is that there are, um, there are, you know, guest expert conversations on a variety of topics. And then there are these ones that I call solo deep dives. So I did one, for example, called how to invite a reluctant partner into relationship work. Um, I did one on where is the line between brutal honesty and people pleasing. Mm. I did one on, you know, can we recover from infidelity? So there, these are ones where I basically just, it's just me talking to just you. I'm bringing together research and examples and kind of like, where do we go from here? Mm. So, um, those episodes tend to, you know, those tend to be quite popular. And it's now becoming, I'm, I'm so excited. It's becoming like this kind of catalog of, you know, understanding different relationship challenges, dynamics. Um, they're, so I think that that's, I don't really necessarily have a fave, but still. A fave, but there's, yeah, I mean, we there's topics, there's ones about sex. I had Emily Nagoski, Dr. Emily Nagoski, and we had a wonderful conversation. There's a great one with Cindy Gallup who created um, this sexual social media platform called Make Love Not Porn, which was basically an antidote to um, pornography. We had a great conversation. So those are a couple about sex. Mm, love um, it. Mm-hmm. Well, so to, to even go further with this, um, or even just to like shift out of sex, because I know you talk so much about so many topics that I want to ask you about. Um you say, you know, a few things in your book about the 20 lessons. Um, one of them is that you have to understand yourself first before you can fully love someone or you have to, and I know that a lot of people have heard this before. They're like, you can't love someone else if you don't love you. And you're saying you can't understand someone else unless mm-hmm. you understand you, which I couldn't agree more. But what do you mean by that? And and how can you relay that? Because I'm guessing again, right now there's people listening that they're like, shoot, I chose a partner before I understood who the heck I was. I hear that all the time. How do you even know you know who you are? Especially That's when right. you're changing. Well, by the way, you never know who you are because whatever whatever you figured out about yourself at age whatever, 25 or 35, then, you know, here comes whatever, raising teenagers, here comes menopause, here comes empty nesting, here comes, you know, you're losing your parents, like here comes whatever. So so we are forever evolving. So I want people to like, first and foremost, let go of a perfectionistic notion that the self is A, fully knowable, and that the self is B, like ever done because it's not we're too we are we are works in progress always 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 so the best we can do is you know understand the past understand where we are now and develop a practice what i call relational self awareness which is an ongoing commitment to be forever students of ourselves forever curious about our reactions to our partner to the world around us and to use those reactions as points of inquiry like why am i why am I responding in this way to this moment with my partner? Because what's so easy in an intimate partnership is to point a finger at our partner. Well, I'm responding this way because of the thing you did. Obviously, if you hadn't done that, I would not be angry or sad or you made me cry. You made me mad. You make me feel crazy. Those are less helpful than what is this moment? What does it remind me of from my past? Who am I afraid of becoming? Who am I afraid my partner is becoming? And those are the skills of relational self-awareness that, you know, we practice every week on my podcast that I'm always working with, with my, you know, clients and students that I'm always working on within my own marriage, frankly. So 
that I guess is it. That it's not a, it's not a like listen to these episodes and then you're done. It's listen to these episodes so you start to have some language and framework and and practice at the process of holding up that mirror ever so gently, <laughs> but ever so diligently, because it's so it's just so easy to point the finger and that ends up making us you know, creating quite unhealthy patterns in our relationships. Yeah. I literally can't agree more. Um, and, and as far as your, you know, these lessons go, you also talk a lot about, you know, this idea that we kind of started talking about, there's never going to be someone who can totally meet all your requirements all the time. It sounds like obvious advice, but it's clearly not because so many of us are struggling with this acceptance. And so I love that we kind of touched on like, yes, there are some needs that, you deeply will have, and maybe those aren't negotiable for you. And I guess that's kind of some yeah. of the, what, what do you have to say about non-negotiables? Because I think a lot of people struggle to figure out what is negotiable for them, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I, yeah, I mean, I, I fully believe you can't just, you know, you can't just put any two people together and be like, you're going to grow. You can grow. I mean, there, I think, right. There are, I guess with, with a non-negotiable, I guess I would want you to be deeply anchored in why it is that that why it is that way for you and why that non-negotiable is is ultimately about setting yourself up to be the best partner you can be to somebody else it's like the non-negotiable is like unless this is in place i cannot love you fully so i am doing neither of us any favors to act like i can build a relationship with you unless this foundation is in place because that's a far more relationally self-aware way of saying it than you have to be this kind of person, not that kind of person. Otherwise, you're not welcome in my life, right? That's just very, that's kind of this, um, what Dr. Bill Doherty calls like a consumer mentality where we are at risk of shopping for a partner, not totally unlike the way we shop for whatever, <laughs> shoes or, you know, yeah. a car where it's like, you have to tick all these boxes or, you know, this one looks good on paper. Like those, if you want to like send me right up the wall, those are the kinds of phrases you use with me. Cause that just sends me up a wall because really it's ultimately about what are the conditions that need to be in place so that I can bring my best self to the relationship and invite forward. Therefore your best self. Mm, so beautiful. Okay. And then um, something else that you talk about that we, I feel like haven't touched on quite yet is just around norms, like how your love life doesn't have to conform to those. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just got back from Mexico. One of my best friends, um, had a, a wedding. She's polyamorous. So a lot of people are like, how does she, how is she getting married if she's poly? And I'm like, well, she's going to have kids with this guy and this is her life partner. And then she's going to have lovers with him that come in and out. But I feel like it was, you know, her relationship to me is the biggest reminder that I have that I don't have to be in the norms, not that I'm leaning towards Mm -hmm. poly or anything. But um, can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that, what that can look like for people? Um, Yeah. Anything Mm -hmm. around that? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is just to validate that, you know, what, what lots and lots of social science research has found is that when it comes to love, sex, and dating, that's the arena around which our gender scripts are the most narrow and the most rigid. We get incredibly focused as a culture on what relationships should 
look like? You know, it should be a him and a her. It should just be the two of them, right? So polyamory is already outside of what is what is prescribed to us as the norm or the good or the best or the only. And we even like literally have laws that sanction this, right? It has to be a him and a her. He should be taller than her. You know, he should earn more money than her. Like all of these ways that... um you know, that the, the relationship should look. And so when a couple steps outside, you know, what I tell a story in Loving Bravely about falling for my husband, Todd, you know, who's like, I don't know, a full three inches shorter than me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom was like, honey, how's this going to work? <laughs> you know, like, and she was like, can he, could he wear like little elevator shoes for the wedding? Because he has to be taller. Like she really had a hard time wow. understanding how could I marry a man? And the, it's obviously a silly example, you know, but I think it's a powerful example in that it is, it's so sneaky. It comes down not just to things like income or, you know, who somebody, but it comes down to things as sneaky and subtle as height, which has actually literally no bearing on the quality of our relationship. But it has been, it has been something I've had to work with. I've had to work with it differently than for, than for Todd. He's never cared. But for me, I had to like let go of the idea that as a man, he should well, the other one was like, he should be able to fix things. That man can't fix shit. I mean, he can fix, you know, <laughs> my own feelings and things like that. He's got a great emotional capacity, but he doesn't fix shit around the house, you know? And yeah. so I had to also like let, know, let go of the idea that a man should be handy. A man should be taller than me, you know? And so that was, and there's there's tremendous liberation outside of the norms, right? Like there's there's something so kind of I don't know, bold and freeing about if we don't have to look a certain way, then we get to look however the hell we want to look and we get to celebrate um, that. And so it becomes liberation, but it feels like it can feel like if we don't do it the right way, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with us? I love what you're sharing. And I actually had a, um, I can't remember which relationship expert it was that we had on a long time ago, but she <laughs> said, I think it was around like 16% of men are over six foot and make more than a hundred K. She was basically <laughs> giving some, and I hope I didn't butcher that. I'll have my team check, but I feel like that's such a reminder of like how ridiculous and how much we create our own barriers. I have a good girlfriend who really wants a life partner, but she like kind of like smiles and laughs and says, well, I have a lot of vanity. They need to have a six pack. They need to do this. They need to make this much money. I'm like, okay, maybe that just means she's not ready to actually find a partner. I don't know. Um, or maybe she'll get what she wants. And I think in the world of manifestation and all these things we yeah. see on Instagram, people, it's like, it's kind of shitty because I feel like it's like, you can have it all. And, and it kind of makes people on one side take a stand for their standards, but on the other have ridiculous standards. And and I guess it's my own judgment and and let yeah. go of maybe somebody that was really great for them. I always say, don't sleep on the short guys. Don't sleep, you know, don't miss out on those guys. Yeah. I mean, maybe they sleep on them, like literally, but like, don't, like, don't miss out. Right. Because I mean, I mean, with your friend, she's got a massive opportunity, should she wish to take it, to explore the story that lives inside of her, most likely about her own body, right? Like her own kind of judgments and control issues that she has come by. Understandably, she's been, you know, raised as a woman in this culture. So she has learned to relate to her own body as a forever fixer upper. She has therefore learned how to relate to a man's body as like his body is a reflection on her value. So this whole, and by the way, none of us are ever freaking promised the bodies that we live in. You could marry somebody with six pack abs who then whatever, develop some kind of medical condition where he can't maintain those abs. Is he less of a man? You could have six pack abs and 
you know, whatever, have a baby, put your focus somewhere else and not have your six pack abs. Are you less worthy? So this, this whole, I mean, I think the body is such a powerful arena where we play this stuff out and it's a, it's a opportunity for inquiry. Like what, what is the story that I attach to that? What is the fear? What is the feared outcome I'm trying to avoid by choosing somebody who looks like X, Y, or Z? So that would be right. If somebody, if my therapy client came to me and her non-negotiable was, I have to marry somebody who's over six feet tall with six pack abs. I'd be like, oh, sweet dear. Okay. We're going to break that down. Like let's unpack it. That's a different kind of non-negotiable than one that is rooted in relational self-awareness perhaps. Okay. So what about money? Because I feel like there is a whole narrative that I have seen, especially in my entrepreneurial community where women are, and and you know what, I'll even focus on myself. Like I love my business and I say love lightly because I think the idea of loving what you do has really messed up a lot of people as a career Mm. expert, I can say. I think I super like what I do, but 20% of the time I'm fixing tech glitches and I literally hate that. So I love what I do 80% of the time, which I'm pretty proud of. And I think sure. I for a lot of people loving what they do most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to have a family. I want to step back as a mother. I'm seeing a lot of my friends have babies. I'm not ready for at least another couple of years. But when I think about me doing that, I know me and I know that I am not going to be a good sport at seeing clients when I'm exhausted and I haven't slept for the night. So I want to take a step back and it is important. I have a partner that can earn a living. That being said, I have a lot of friends who are like, you know, I want this. I want a seven figure. My husband needs to make a lot of money because I value my lifestyle. I want really nice stuff, but I don't want to work because I want to do. So can you give me a, I mean, on one side, everybody's needs are valid, right? Like if this is what you need, this is what you need. On the other side, I'm like, well, you know, money moves, money changes. It comes, Mm. it goes. And I just know way too many sad people in big houses right now. (laughs) And so I just want to make sure that, you know, yes, money is so fun. And when you don't have it, you have a lot of pain because if you can't pay for your medical bills or you can't pay for it, it sucks. Um, But people are also putting this pressure on their choice with that. So what, what would you share about money? Well, the thing that the research has found about money is there is a threshold. Like there is an actual threshold, you know, below which it's very hard to be happy for the reasons that you talked about, you know, feeling like having actual experiences of scarcity, having to actually decide which bill to pay, you know, having actual fears about like that is puts immense pressure on somebody's mental health and their relational health. So there is a threshold. So that is not, that is not made up. That is about money as a, as something that helps us get the things that we actually need. But what that research has also shown is that there is a threshold beyond which more money does not equal more happiness. And so that's, you know, like that's the space, like the sort of beyond the threshold of comfort and ease and basic needs being met beyond that threshold, it is worth inquiring within yourself about where those money stories, like that kind of financial self-awareness piece. And I think that starts with family of origin. What did you, how'd you see your parents talking about money? How did your parents talk about people with more money than your family had? How'd you talk, how'd you watch your parents talk about people who had less money than your family had? I want couples to be talking about socioeconomic differences between the two of them, which I think is really hard. Um, you know, how did your family grow up versus how did my family grow up? How does that inform my preferences, my fears, my expectations? So yeah, I mean, I think it's right. I would, I would not last long in a conversation about manifesting a seven figure earner unless, (laughs) unless we started talking about 
What are the family of origin roots? What does that say to you? Who are you if you're partnered with a seven-figure person? Who are you if you aren't? I think, you know, I think, listen, I think women, a woman who wants that may, what, what she may be saying is I am scared to death of having to do it all myself because I watched my mom do it all herself and I watched, you know, whatever. And I am scared of being alone. So what I need to feel is that my partner is equally yoked, that my, my partner gets it, that we are in this together. So that might be what the person's saying. And I think there are people who probably earn seven figures who, who could create a ton of loneliness in a relationship and somebody who makes less than seven figures who could create an immense sense of fullness. Like, yeah, I, we, you know, we don't earn as much as that couple or that couple, but I'm right here with you and you are not alone. And we, you know, I'm watching the money the way you're watching the money. And I'm making sure that you've got liberation and ease. And you're making sure I've got liberation and ease. I love that so much. And it makes me think like my partner right now, he's building a startup. And so he probably hasn't taken a paycheck in like five months. And so it's interesting because there's a lot of narratives around chivalry as well, where it's like they should pay for the first couple of months or whatever. And I'm not, I actually, I mean, I love that. I think it's so lovely when somebody treats you like you're their guest and Mm -hmm. It's like, my man's not taking a paycheck for the past six months. Like, I don't want him to like, sure. you know, stress yep, yep. himself to date me. Yep. So how, what would yep. be your message around like chivalry and how do how do we decide what chivalry even means or whatever the equivalent word is that doesn't have such a woman mm. from a man implication? Yeah. Well, I think one, I think when someone's talking about wanting to be treated, I think it's very easy to talk about, right? you buying me dinner is chivalry. But really what someone's saying is, I want to feel cherished. I want to feel celebrated. I want to feel hosted. I want to feel special. And so we, I think we thin, I think that need is, my gosh, that, that need is so human. I so get that. But I think there's lots of ways to feel chosen, celebrated, cherished, held, hosted that maybe don't have to come with a a price tag. So I guess I would want someone to just be curious about what are all the ways this person is providing, you know, what what are they providing? Are they providing whatever, a ton of sexual patience and creativity and presence? Are they providing a ton of kindness and a really gentle ear? Are they, you know, what else are they providing? Mm -hmm. I love that. And on that note with what someone is providing, you talk in your your 20 lessons about just like creating space to digest and reflect um, emotionally. And I, I love that, especially in the early stages of dating. Sometimes we I used to go really fast and a lot of people have done that where they're like, I have a feeling and it's it feels so good. But then you don't really take the time. There is no replacement for time, right? So yeah. not take the time to really get to know the person, whatever. Um, and you don't have that space that you actually might need to digest and uh, reflect or even just dodge maybe some unnecessary emotional confrontation. Yeah. So what would be your message around that kind of space that we all might need as humans to just be more integrated in our relationships? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, urge- I think people come by their urgency real honestly in the you know capitalist blah, 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 kind of a culture. There is a lot of urgency and it's very, I mean, I, you know, I have been married for nearly a quarter of a century, so I have not dated in a very long time, but I am here to support and cheer on people who are dating. Cause I think it's so freaking brave. I think there's such a, so many learning opportunities. So when we think about somebody in the early stages of a dating relationship, 
who's feeling urgent, I get that because it's very hard to sit in uncertainty and dating is very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, so I think that's where all those practices of like self-care, you know, increasing our ability to, to kind of not know, recognizing that, that, that not knowing is, is part of just being alive, that even if, and when you commit to this person, even if, and when you marry this person, you're going to not know because the relationship's going to change. So I think that the goal is to increase the capacity for not knowing. And I really don't want people to look outside themselves for the timeline. Like any coach or therapist or Instagram influencer who gives you a timeline of by three months, it should be this, by six months, it should be this. I would like you to (laughs) unfollow them. Like I just, I don't want you to have somebody else's external timeline. I want your timeline to be something that is rooted within you and based on your felt sense and something that's negotiated between you and this other person because they come in with their timeline as well. And so it is this like dance of of, you know, of pacing. Um, but I think you're right. I think urgency, I think urgency can be, you know, urgency can be kind of a blinking indicator light to somebody of like, let me slow down and figure out what the hell I'm so urgent about. What's hard about going slow? Yeah. And I mean, you, you gave a good point. It is really uncomfortable in the early stages. I also think people emotionally, like you were saying, they kind of move at a different pace. It's not yes. like get this playbook. Um, and so I think, you know, people are dealing with pace challenges in all different ways, right? Like when to say, I love you, when to move in together, when to have another child, if they're yeah. married. Yeah. Um, h- how do you, what would be your take on that? Because I know that one of the most toxic dynamics that can evolve through that is like a power struggle where it's like the other person's always holding the power because they're yeah. always making the decision and the other person, the other other person always just waiting for them. And they feel That's like their right. life doesn't happen until that other person makes a decision. Um, or gives them the love back that they want and says, I love you back. Um, So what would be your message around pace? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I know that this is my friend right now. It's like she's waiting for her guy to propose and it's creating such a shitty dynamic between them. It's almost making them not want to get engaged. So yeah, anything around this? Those are probably two of my favorite podcast episodes I've done so far was um, they were called talking about the future with your partner. And they were about, about what I call a pace discrepancy, like navigating a pace discrepancy, which is so common. I mean, you just thought of the example of your friend who's waiting for um, her partner to propose. I mean, one thought would be she could propose to him. You know, this would be like, this is one of these ways where because of this freaking script, you know, women are put in a spot of waiting the most she can do, right? She has no, if she follows a script like a good girl, the only power she has is the power to convince him and persuade him. She does not have the power to take matters into her own hands. And it's so freaking unfortunate because, um, because it, it keeps them from looking at this, right? Because it does create a power dynamic. And this is an actual power dynamic because only one of them, according to the script, has the power to take the relationship to the next level at this point in time. But any, you know, any pace discrepancy ends up being at, at its worst. At its worst, each partner experiences the other in a highly negative way, right? right? I experience you as one foot out the door because you won't commit or you won't deepen. And you you perceive me as being nothing but a pressure cooker, like being with me becomes highly stressful. So it's like, and, and then that creates a polarization. It becomes an actual relational dynamic where I feel more urgency because of your hesitance and you experience more hesitance because of my urgency. So the thing, what is, what is actually just a highly understandable 
phenomenon, which is that we arrive at readiness on our own schedules. That is, that is, there's no problem there. Of course, people have their own schedules. That's not the problem. The problem is what we do in the space of your readiness versus my readiness. And we turn it into, just as you said, we turn it into a power struggle. And in that power struggle, we become more polarized. So that's what I want. That's what I was really committed to making those episodes because I wanted people to have a different way of relating to and dealing with it, which is basically going shoulder to shoulder and looking together at this question of like, when are we ready for engagement? How would we know? I made a I made a little worksheet for people to go with those episodes to have a different kind of conversation about the pace discrepancy mm-hmm. rather than a conversation about me convincing you or you convincing me because that mm-hmm. conversation is not very interesting. Mm. Okay. You're just full of information. I feel like at the beginning, you okay. were like, oh, you're taking this everywhere. And I'm like, I think I just did. So thank <laughs> you for that. Um, what have I not asked you, if anything, that feels like just kind of lasting advice you want to leave for everybody who's heard our conversation um, that sits with you when you are in your work, when you are helping people um, is there anything that I haven't squeezed out of you? <laughs> no, you squeeze. You're a good squeezer. I, I loved it. I, I loved it. We covered, I mean, I feel like you know your audience really well. And so I suspect that you gave them exactly what what they wanted and needed. And I think the biggest thing would just be like thicker, you know, thicker stories about all of this, you know, like thicker, more nuanced, more curious, more gentle stories about all of this. I think that we... So, you know, it's pretty wild for me to be doing the work that I do because when I started 20 years ago, like I could only speak to the public when a journalist would come to me or when a reporter would come to me and they would invite me onto their show or quote me in their article, you know, and now I create content every day. You and I are having this conversation. Like there's so many more sources, but what it means is there's more responsibility on the listener to really be thoughtful about who they're listening to, how they're listening you know, because there's whenever there's an easy answer or a shortcut or a hack, I want people to be a little suspicious because those often lead to less self-compassion, you know, and less like curiosity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that would be probably it. Thank you again for being here. Where can everybody find your work? I know on Amazon, they can find your books. Where else would be a good place to come grab you? Yeah. I mean, the books are are a wonderful place to start, as is um, my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where there's hundreds of blog articles, links to the show, the podcast, Reimagining Love is available wherever you get your podcasts. And on the website, you will also see I've got um, a couple of courses. There's a course for um, for therapists that I develop um, to support people who are dating and single and um, breaking up and beginning again. I've created two e-courses, one just a relationships one-on-one e-course and one for couples who are in the wake of infidelity and trying to figure out how to rebuild trust. And then social media is, you know, Instagram is a great way for people to just kind of put that first toe in the water, a newsletter. So yeah, lots of lots of elements to the ecosystem, which has been, as you were talking about being an entrepreneur, right? Like so wild to be yeah. a bit less in academia at this chapter of my life and a bit more in this world of building and curating and creating. It's pretty fascinating. Definitely. It is a interesting time to be alive and <laughs> so glad you're here. Thank you. And everybody, I would love to see you share the episode and tell me what you learned or why it mattered for you. You guys, the more you all share, um, the more it means just to remember that you're listening. And I know there's thousands of you doing so. So thank you. And uh, until next time. 
Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.